Would you all open with me to Revelation chapter 1? Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1028. I hated to miss uh, lunch with you all last, last Sunday. Um, we had to drive to South Texas for a funeral. Uh, the pastor under whose preaching I had come to know Christ and also was a mentor to me for a little while, he went to be with the Lord. His name was Bill Simmons. He was uh, 67 and uh, pastored River Hills Baptist for, for uh, 37 years. So, uh, at the funeral, though, his, his son preached from Isaiah 6, uh, where the Lord kind of pulls back the curtains and reveals His heavenly glory. And Isaiah sees the Lord high and, and lifted up, seated on His throne. But something Jody highlighted was, was how that vision had come to the people in a very turbulent time. Uh, you see the, the king that they had admired in Israel, King Uzziah, he had died. And so it's Isaiah 6 that begins in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. And so this earthly throne was, in Israel was empty. But God's heavenly throne remained occupied. He was still reigning, still sovereign, still saving, still in control. And other prophets experienced similar things. Ezekiel, again, during a turbulent time for God's people, not only was Israel in exile, but enemy nations, they grew very arrogant in oppressing them. And God, again, pulls back the curtain and reveals His heavenly glory. Ezekiel sees the Lord enthroned on His, on his war chariot. Daniel experiences something similar. Zechariah has the, vision, the night visions as well during these turbulent times, and God reveals His heavenly glory to them as well. And in every case, the point was clear that even though their world seemed to be falling apart, even though the leaders that they had admired had died, even though the rebel nations were persecuting and oppressing God's people, God was still on His throne, controlling history, caring for His people, and completing all of His saving purposes. The clouds of tribulation sometimes make it hard to see that there is hope. God must pull back the curtain for us and reveal His heavenly glory. And we encounter the same pattern in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, that just like the prophets of old, John lives in a very turbulent time for the church. John faces what he calls tribulation. A tribulation that includes a dragon spreading lies and deceiving peoples, nations persecuting Christians, teaching that undermines Jesus' authority, a moral revolution attempting, uh, that's tempting churches to, to compromise in significant ways. But in the face of that turbulence, in the midst of those clouds, the Lord pulls back the curtain for John and the Lord gives the church a vision of His heavenly glory. 
The heavenly glory that we witness in this passage is the glory that Jesus Christ possesses right now, and it is a glory that we need to see as well. It is a glory that should fuel our endurance and tribulation and give us hope. So with that in mind, let's read it together, starting in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, to this point in Revelation, we have covered a general introduction. That was verses 1 to 3. And then we saw this rich greeting from the Trinity. That was verses 4 to 8. And now we're kind of shifting into the prophetic commissioning of, of John. John has an experience, just like, the other, like other Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel, receive these heavenly visions, the majesty of which causes them to faint. Like, and then the Lord strengthens the prophet to rise and then write the vision. And God now commissions John in a way that aligns with those earlier prophets. In the process of this commissioning, though, we we learn several things about the word John receives. For starters, it is a word for churches in tribulation. It is a word for churches in tribulation. Notice how John calls himself your brother and your and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now those ideas are inseparable. If you are in Jesus, meaning you belong to him, right? You follow him, you have faith in him, you share a saving connection to him. If you are in Jesus, then you are a partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance. You don't get to be in Jesus and escape tribulation. To belong to Jesus' kingdom does not mean an easier life. It means a harder one. 
Tribulation has to do with persecution in Matthew 13. It's being hated by all for Christ's sake in Matthew 24. In Acts 20, it includes imprisonment. In 2 Corinthians 1, it includes Paul so burdened beyond the strength beyond his strength that he despairs of life itself. In, in Revelation 2, it includes slander from others and poverty because of one's devotion to Christ. Now, it may be the case that the closer we get to Jesus' coming, the more intense the tribulation will become. But the tribulation of which John speaks is that shared experience by every Christian between the cross and the second coming. An entire system of rebellion stands against Jesus and the people who who, who represent Jesus. It's called the tribulation. John is a part of it, and if you're a Christian, so are you. If you're going to last, you need endurance. Not everyone will experience the same kind or the same level of persecution. It seems that authorities had exiled John here to the island of Patmos, but he still has the resources to write a book like this one and send it to the other churches. Other Christians didn't get exile. They got the sword or they got prison. Tribulation comes in different forms, But in all of it, endurance is crucial. It takes endurance to stand against the dragon's assaults against the church. It takes endurance when people you love reject you for standing on God's word. It takes endurance not to buckle under the cultural pressures for you to embrace a moral vision that's contrary to Christ. It takes endurance to keep loving your enemies when they do awful things to you. My brother's church uh, supports a ministry in India, and one of their beloved pastors died this week. His name was Pastor Sundaram. This is him. Sundaram knew the Christian life required endurance. I'm told that he lost his wife years ago. Shortly after that, he lost both his son and daughter-in-law. Sundaram then took in his grandson to raise him and disciple him in the ways of the Lord, but then his grandson was beaten to death by his teacher at school. And yet, in the midst of all his suffering and sorrow, he preached Christ. And he preached Christ in the hardest places. The village in which he was ministering continues to practice cannibalism. So how does endurance like the endurance we find in a believer like Sundaram. How does it come? What keeps you faithful when the shared experience of, uh, in, in following Jesus is this hardship after hardship after hardship? What is it that keeps the saints faithful to the end even when your grandson whom you've adopted and raised in the ways of the Lord is beaten to death? What will keep you preaching Christ when all is stripped away? And I think the answer and the reason why this passage is in the book is to tell us seeing the exalted Jesus will keep you going. In the clouds of tribulation, we need a vision of the exalted Jesus to keep persevering. That's the next thing we learn about the word John receives. It is a word from the exalted Jesus. 
A word from the exalted Jesus. And it is this vision of Jesus that fuels the church's endurance. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Spirit brings John into a state, much like the the, uh, visionary prophets of the Old Testament, and he he hears a loud voice like a trumpet telling him to to write what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches. And immediately we we should be expecting an encounter with God, because where else does the Scriptures associate God's voice with that of a trumpet? It's at at Mount Sinai when God reveals Himself to Moses. And here, John hears a loud voice like a trumpet. John then turns to see the voice, and, and on turning, he sees the exalted Lord in all of His majesty. And as John describes what he sees, it's as if he's turning a diamond. And as he's turning that diamond, he's layering words on top of words just to describe some of the facets he sees of its beauty. John here uses a a mosaic of of Old Testament imagery to to describe the various facets of Jesus' glory. One facet is that He is the great King ruling God's kingdom. The great King ruling God's kingdom. He sees one like a son of man. That's from Daniel 7.13. Daniel sees these four beasts, which represent these four rebel kingdoms, and he sees the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat, and then he sees this vision of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and it says, And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And here John is saying, Jesus is Daniel, son of man. Jesus will replace all rebel kingdoms with God's kingdoms. Jesus has dominion forever. Now, we discussed that more thoroughly last Sunday. So let's move to another facet in Jesus' glory. He is the ever-present priest tending to the churches. John sees these seven golden lampstands, and we're told in verse 20 that those lampstands are the seven churches. But notice verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, these are garments of those who serve in God's presence. We see Angels coming out of God's presence in Revelation 15.6 with golden sashes across their chest. But Moses also uses this language for the garments of the priests who served in God's presence in Exodus 28. Also, in the tabernacle, who is it that, it, that tends to the lampstand? It is the priest. The priest ensured that there was an ongoing supply of oil and that the seven lamps burned brightly to light the way into God's presence. The imagery here depicts Jesus as a great priest tending His lampstands, tending His churches, tending His people that they might continue burning with the light of His Spirit, that they might light the way into God's presence. And He's walking among the churches and He knows what each church needs for their lamp to burn brightly. Another facet, Jesus is the glorious messenger. 
revealing God's purpose. Verse 14 says that his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And the end of verse 15 says his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's language from Daniel 10. Okay, Daniel 10 verse 5 says, Behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. So think here of, of uh, this gleaming, polished armor on a warrior. Now, it may be tempting to think Daniel has just encountered the pre-incarnate Christ, but if you keep reading Daniel 10, you soon discover that this heavenly figure needs help from another angel named Michael. And so it's more likely that this is a heavenly warrior in God's army, and, his, and this heavenly warrior reflects aspects of Christ's own glorious warrior-like presence. But what's the significance Well, much like the glorious warrior in Daniel 10, Jesus comes to disclose these heavenly realities. That's what the angel did for Daniel during the days of Cyrus. The angel disclosed that the conflicts that Cyrus and and Israel, the conflicts that that they were having on earth were actually connected to a far greater conflict in heaven. And so also in Revelation, Christ reveals that our conflicts on earth are connected to this far greater conflict in heaven. That what we see with our eyes is not all that's there. He comes as heaven's greatest warrior here in Revelation to tell us this is what the battle really looks like. This is how I am fighting and this is how I have conquered Let's turn the diamond yet again. Jesus is the sovereign Lord controlling history. The sovereign Lord controlling history. Notice how verse 14 begins. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now that comes from Daniel 7 again, but it's not the paragraph about the Son of Man. It's the paragraph about the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7, 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. So John is identifying Jesus' glory with the glory of Yahweh himself. And he also says that his voice was like the roar of many waters there at the end of verse 15. That comes from Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24, describing the voice of the Almighty God. The voice of the glorified Jesus is the voice of the Almighty God. But notice another description that Jesus gives Himself in verse 17. He says, I am the first and the last. Now that appears in Isaiah 41, Isaiah 44, and Isaiah 48. I'm throwing out a whole lot of Old Testament here. This manuscript will be online Tuesday morning. So if you're trying to scramble writing down just the right reference, sorry, I'm going to keep plugging away. But you can get them later online if you're you're losing track. 
But each time that, that Yahweh uses this, uh, this title, I am the first and the last in Isaiah, he is distinguishing himself from, his na- from the nations and their idols. Okay? The nations and their idols lack any power to determine the future. But God, who is the first and the last, not only knows the future before it takes place, his word creates the future. So it has this polemical edge to it against the nation's idols. Neither the nations nor their gods are really in control. And John is saying, Jesus is. Jesus' word is sovereign. Another facet, Jesus is the inescapable judge whose word is all-powerful. Verse 16 says that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So we got two things coming together. From his mouth, meaning the speech... Right? The words he's speaking, and then you've got this, this offensive weapon that's used to defeat your enemy. So you, you put them together, and what we're seeing here is that Jesus conquers his enemies by the words he speaks. The image comes from two places in Isaiah. Isaiah 11 says of the Messiah, With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And Isaiah 49, 2 He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Okay, so John combines these images from Isaiah to describe how Jesus will bring judgment on his enemies. He will speak words and it will happen. Right? How many times do we see this happening in the Old Testament? God speaks and floods the earth. God speaks, opens the earth, and swallows a whole bunch of rebels. God speaks and ends Jezebel's life. God speaks and and you've got... Babylon, who comes in and ransacks Israel. God speaks and raises up another nation to conquer Babylon. It's all over the Bible. God's word falls in judgment on a people like a sword falls on an enemy in battle. And John is saying that Jesus' words are like that too. Let's do one more facet. Jesus is the living one with all authority over death. Now, John's response in verse 17 is fitting, isn't it? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. It reminds us of the words we we heard from Joel a while back. Like, before him, who can stand? And it says, but Jesus laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I love how Jesus' present glory never forgets His former humility. Jesus' present glory never forgets His former humility. He He died. He says, I died. What? What? Why would someone so powerful, so glorious, so eternal, so majestic, so beautiful, so in control of everything in history, why would he say, I died? And the answer came in verse 5. 
to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. The reason He died is because He chose to love us. He chose to humble Himself. He set aside His right to be seen as this glorious, and He humbled Himself even to the point of death on a cross. He loved us, and He entered death for our sake. He entered death to free us from our sins. And having taken them away, John need not fear. Remember, He is in Jesus. That's how the passage started. When you're in Jesus, you need not fear. John also doesn't have to fear because Jesus has entered death to defeat its hold on all His people. Jesus took up His life again. Behold, He adds, I am alive forevermore. So God vindicated Jesus' redeeming work on the cross by resurrection. Now Jesus, it says, has has the keys of death and Hades. Now, if you take the keys away from your kids, they have no authority to drive your car, do they? (laughs) They speak from experience as a child. To have the keys means you've got authority over something. You control what goes in and who goes out. And that's what John is saying of Jesus. He has the keys of death and Hades. He controls who goes in and who gets out. Some Jesus will raise to eternal life. Those who follow Him no longer need to fear death and Hades. But others Jesus will raise for judgment along with death and Hades. Revelation 20 talks about those who reject Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. No other king has such authority. God has given that authority to one man, Jesus Christ. Now, there are other facets we can't cover today, but eventually we will as they appear again in the seven letters. For now, verse 19 finishes out the commission. It says, we see that, we, we see that this is also a word about the already and not yet. So the word that Jesus gives to the people is about the already, what's already the case, and what's not yet The case. He says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, some think this outlines the structure of the book of Revelation, but uh, better though is to take these latter two clauses to explain the first. That is, John must write the things that he sees, namely, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. And that's what the book of Revelation does. It talks about the things that are. And it talks about the things that are to come. So the already and the not yet. Last week we talked a lot about the not yet. And we talked about Jesus' coming. Verses 9 to 20, though, shift the focus to the already, the present glory of the exalted Jesus. John has written down for us what Jesus is like right now. So what are a few takeaways from a passage like this one? What do we learn from it for our own 
discipleship, for our own pursuit of holiness? How will it help us face tribulation? How will it help us endure in the moral revolution? Right? How? how so that we obey Christ in all of it? How, how will this help? And for starters, I want to say count the cost. Count the cost. Union with Jesus includes tribulation and requires endurance. That's one thing we can take away from this text. Our culture likes to give us the illusion that we're safe. Or that you can be safe if you just have the right amount of money and the right kind of guns and the right kind of alarms and the right kind of locks, you will be safe. It's often the first question we ask. Will it be safe? Is the neighborhood safe? Our culture even makes us feel entitled to this safety sometimes, this this comfort, entitled to this pain-free life. But as one missionary to Equatorial Guinea put it, our idol of safety often infests our decision to serve. Following Jesus is not safe. Our union with Jesus means tribulation. This is discipleship 101. Acts 14.23. What does Paul teach the disciples? Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And you need to know that so you won't be surprised and think something is wrong or think God's not in control or the gospel isn't working when some of the freedoms you enjoy now disappear. You need to know that so that we can teach other people to count the cost. I'm thinking our children here to count the cost before they enter the church. The cross means death in the path of love. And you need to know that so you don't throw in the towel at the first whiff of tribulation. So if you're not in Christ, perhaps you're not a Christian, but you're thinking about becoming one, please count the cost. Be sure that you understand what Jesus is really calling you to. Don't get me wrong. He is worthy of every sacrifice you will ever make. Just be sure that you're not signing up for your best life now. And if you are a Christian, make sure that you're not duped into thinking that every day with Jesus will be comfortable and convenient. It's not. Love is not convenient. To follow Jesus in the path of love means that you will encounter a world that hates you just like it hated Jesus. Something else. Take courage. Jesus is near to His people in tribulation. Take courage. Jesus is near to His people in tribulation. John is a partner in the tribulation. He has been exiled to an island. A government has fixed certain parameters on His influence. And yet the Lord Jesus meets Him there. He meets John during the tribulation. He ministers to John in the Spirit. He helps John to see his glory during turbulent times. And he did for the same for, the, for Stephen, right? When Stephen's getting stoned, the heavens split and he sees Jesus in all of his glory. 
And he did the same for Paul when everyone had abandoned Paul in 2 Timothy 4. And he says, but the Lord stood by me. Or another time when Paul is stranded at sea on a ship and being storm-tossed and the Lord meets him there in a dream. It is also the consistent testimony of Christians who suffer throughout the world. Some of them even saying, when you read their biographies, some of them even saying how they missed the prison because of how sweet the communion with Jesus was there. We also see the exalted Jesus when what is he doing here? He's walking among the lampstands, among the churches. So right now, during our tribulation, Jesus is with us. Jesus is attending to you, Redeemer Church. He is walking in our midst. I know that you cannot see Him now with your eyes. But that's why we need this book. That's why we need revelation. We need somebody during the midst of our turbulence and during the clouds of our tribulation to peel back the curtain so that we can get a clear vision of Jesus. And what we see is that He's walking in our midst. Jesus revealed His glory to John in this way so that we would receive encouragement from it as well when we read this book and say, He's walking among the churches. In the midst of my tribulation, He is with me. So this book helps us to see things as they really are. On earth, it sometimes feels like He's absent. The thoughts in our heads sometimes question His care. And we need God to pull back the curtain And that's what He does here. He gives us the heavenly perspective. We need the Word to help us see right now that He walks among the lampstands. He knows you. He knows your trials. He knows your needs to make your lampstand burn brightly in the midst of trial. So take courage. The glorious Christ, this glorious Christ, meets us in tribulation. He walks with us during turbulent times. Next, meditate on the exalted Jesus. Your endurance counts on it. Meditate on the exalted Jesus. Your endurance counts on it. When we get to the letters, each letter, you will notice, will begin with just one piece of the things we've developed today, that we've seen today. Each letter begins with a part of the vision that John sees here. There are aspects of Jesus' glory that each church needs to see more clearly. Sometimes the vision of Jesus' glory, it brings great comfort and great courage to the church. So, for example, uh, the church in Smyrna. Some of them are going to soon face imprisonment. The devil's going to throw them in prison. They're going to be tried. And Jesus tells them, be faithful unto death. But how does their letter begin? The words of the first and the last. Meaning, I've got this. I'm controlling everything here. And he who died and came to life. 
So why can they have courage to endure in the face of imprisonment and even death? How can they be faithful unto death? Because they're confident that Jesus has the keys of death in Hades and He has died and He is alive forevermore and He will raise them from the dead too. So when they enter death for His sake, they are ensured that they will receive the crown of life. And so it's in meditating on that aspect of Jesus' glory that they receive, they receive strength in the midst of imprisonment and death. To keep going, to endure. But Jesus' glory doesn't only comfort the believer and give courage. It also confronts the believers, doesn't it? Take the church in Thyatira. Jesus reminds them that he has these eyes like flames of fire. And then after warning them to repent, he threatens them with, the, with judgment and then says this in chapter 2, verse 23, and all the churches will know. If you don't repent and I throw you onto the sickbed, all the churches who see this happening in the present, they will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and and. and and will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus doesn't mess around with sin. He doesn't tolerate idolatry. He doesn't tolerate sexual immorality. So in this instance, meditating on the exalted Jesus enables the church to endure when the world wants them to compromise. When the world wants them to participate in the same things that they're participating in. Right? What a comfort it is for Jesus to be in our midst and walking among us. At the same time, He's in our midst and walking among us. You see how these are playing out? So when we're meditating on His glory, we're we're receiving both as we think of His Holiness and glory and also His nearness and comfort. I wonder if we're doing the next generation a disservice when all they see in children's books is the cartoon Jesus with a nice smile and good hair. We need to be careful with the way we think about Jesus and present Him to others. The Jesus that John sees shatters the versions we often imagine. And given our proclivities on this side of Adam's fall, it's rather easy to create a Jesus that's safe and tame and controllable. But the true Jesus will not be tamed by man. He is not our homeboy. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He rose victorious over sin and death. He rules all nations. He's ever present with the churches. He is priest, Lord, servant, judge, and warrior, king. There is no one like him. Jesus means for this vision of his exalted glory to keep us faithful in all ways. And so meditate on it. Go back to the Old Testament and trace out more of what this imagery entails. Think about His glory often. Sing about His glory. Download good music and get rid of the fluff on KLTY or whatever. And chunk it and get some good stuff and sing of His glory throughout your day. Remind each other what He's truly like in the words you share and in care group settings. 
pray about His glory, meditate on the exalted Jesus always, and you will find endurance to resist temptation and obey with fervency, and you will find grace for your lamp to burn brightly. And then finally, worship Jesus in tribulation. He is God. Worship Jesus in tribulation. John's sufferings, his exile, his his tribulation, they do not keep him from worship. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Moreover, it's no accident that that several metaphors that, that once applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament, they now describe Jesus. And that is because Jesus is God. And as God, He is worthy of our worship in all circumstances. This is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. We worship Jesus as God. If you ask pagans in the second and third centuries, what distinguished Christianity from all the other religions, the pagans would answer the exclusive worship of Jesus. It's in their writings. You can find it. They mocked Christians for it. But what I want to emphasize here is that no matter what we face in tribulation, none of it will make Jesus any less glorious, any less deserving of our exclusive allegiance and adoration. He is still on the throne, controlling history, caring for His people, and completing all His saving purposes. Now, sometimes our worship of Jesus will be Filled, it would be like this one, right? We're all gathered, relatively peaceful, enjoying the songs and prayers together. Other times, though, our worship of Jesus will sound like Psalm 22. Alone, suffering in darkness, feeling forgotten, saying words like, Why are you so far from me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And I cry by night, but I find no rest. And then listen to this. Yet. Yet you are holy. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. So no matter what you may be facing, the Lord Jesus is sovereign and He is worthy of your praise. We're going to sing now as before we eat the supper together. And Gary and the worship team are going to come up and lead us in that song but I just want you to, to sing these, these next words. It's, it's a song you're very familiar with. And just think about the vision of Jesus. No matter where you are, no matter what tribulation your fate, kind of tribulation you're facing, I want you to think of this vision of Jesus that we've just heard about as you sing these words. <laughs>